dead is found in the passage that we read here this morning in Matthew 28, 19. This is what is dubbed as the Great Commission. It's the Great Commission where Jesus sends his disciples out, commissioning them, co-mission. Co meaning to unite with, to, to be uh, cooperative with his mission. He sends them out to be on his mission. So they are now commissioned. They're on his behalf. They're going on his authority, doing his will, accomplishing his work in the earth. It's recorded in every gospel, in Matthew, in Mark, and Luke. And there's a little bit of it in, even in the book of John. A little phrase that's mentioned at the end of John that's a tag on to the Great Commission. And you might look at those, all those four, and, and they're actually all recorded a little bit differently. Matthew records it one way, Mark records it another, Luke records it in another way. In fact, Luke and the book of Acts are the same, they're originally the same book. Luke and Acts are, are actually two books that are supposed to be part one, part two, is how they were originally written and penned, and, and we kind of lose that sense when we look at our current Bible and the way it's divided up, but Luke and Acts are written by the same guy, the same author, and they're written relatively at the same time. It was like Luke just continued to write. He finished the works of Jesus, and now he goes into the Acts of the Apostles. And, um, and so the, the first book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, uh, records a little bit of the ending of that great commission that Jesus gave. So in all of these commission statements, we find the rounded version of what Jesus actually said. And it's important to look at that. It'd be like four of you gathering together and listening to a famous speech, listening to a famous uh, thing, and someone came to you and said, what did, what did that person have to say? And all of you would say relatively the same thing. You would probably hit all the highlights, but something would stick to you more than stick to somebody else. Something would be highlighted in your mind versus how it was highlighted to somebody else. And so the four together create the well-rounded vision of what Jesus said in his great commission. And what he started with in, in, in Matthew 28 and 19 is super important. you got to catch this. In verse 18, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now you can read that quickly and just go, yeah, of course, right. But you have to slow down and realize what exactly he's saying. Jesus doesn't say things casually. He doesn't say things passively. When he speaks something, especially like this, you need to pay attention. He's speaking something very important. He's, first of all, you have to realize that if Jesus is claiming to have all authority in heaven, then he's... First of all, defining himself as God in the flesh to his disciples. He's, he's making sure his disciples make no mistake and have no, no, no mystery about it in their mind that Jesus is indeed God because the only one who can have all authority in heaven is the almighty God of the Old Testament. Jehovah is the only one with all authority. If you look in the Old Testament, over and over in the book of Isaiah, Jehovah is constantly speaking and saying, I am the Lord and there is no one else. There is no God beside me. 
There is no Savior like me. There is no one with my arm that can stretch out and, and do this and do that. I am alone God, and there is no one else. So when Jesus speaks to his disciples and says, I have been given all authority in heaven and in earth, it was the man, Jesus Christ, the man, Christ Jesus, that had now risen to his place of full authority as God in the flesh. He was now fully God, fully man, and he was entirely in his place of king. No longer is he the prince of peace, but now he's ascended to his role as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But Jesus doesn't stop at heaven. One might think it would be enough to have all authority in heaven, but Jesus made the statement to say, I've been given all authority in heaven, and I also have all authority on the earth. You might ask, that might kind of be strange to make that statement. Isn't that obvious? Isn't that already the case? Doesn't God already have all authority on the earth? And if you look around you today, the answer to that question is surely not. God does not have all authority on the earth. Because there seems to be another power with equal authority and, and power and strength at work in the earth. Have you ever noticed it when you read the Gospels? You get to Matthew chapter 1. Two, three, four, and you don't get very far into the first book of the New Testament before people with demons start coming out of the woodwork. Never before was there any demonic manifestation. Never before were there people that were literally crawling out of their skins, throwing themselves into the fire and the water, trying to hurt themselves as Jesus walked by. But all of a sudden, when Jesus steps on the scene, the demons that were resident in the lives of people begin to manifest themselves and shriek and cry out. And all of a sudden, this man with great authority comes and points his finger at them and says, leave. And they would scream, the demons would scream, have you come to torment us before the time? Because there was, a, a, there was something going on. You didn't see that in the Old Testament. You didn't see any records of demonic activity on the outward. It was all subvert. It was all covert. It was all behind the scenes. Believe it, there was demonic activity in the Old Testament. Demon spirits were at work in the lives of people for sure. Why else would people take their babies and put it on a hot brass plate and offer it to a god in, in, in a false pagan worship center? There's definitely demonic activity in the Old Testament. But here you get to the New Testament and all of a sudden that demonic activity is coming to the forefront and demons are being cast out and blind eyes are opened and the lame are walking, and all this stuff is taking place. Why? Because the authority of the then reigning king was being challenged. You may not want to accept it, but the Bible makes it very clear that Satan is the God, small g, of this world. Satan is the Lord of this system. Satan is the Lord of the education system. He is the Lord of the governmental system. He is the Lord of the entertainment system. Please do not put your trust and your hopes in this world. It is not anything that you can rely on. Don't ever hope that, that Christians will be successful in reforming their world. It is, this world is not reformable. This world needs to be redeemed. This world is redeemable, for sure. There are people that are redeemable, but the systems of this world are definitely under the control and the direction of Satan and his kingdom. 
And I know that statement can, can be very inflammatory. That statement can sound very dramatic and over the top. And I don't believe that, that the individuals necessarily are, 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 are the ones that are the problem. But you have to understand there's like puppets on a string. You just have to look from a back, pull yourself back at the news reports. And you're seeing murders and corruption and political leaders falling prey to to, to things all over the news and everywhere you go and all that you see it seems to be corrupted down to the core because it is. There is a broken system there. There is no hope in this world's governments. Our hope is in Jesus. And so Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, I've been given all authority in heaven and now, disciples, I have all authority on the earth. And I'm now transferring that authority to you. See, just to quickly explain without getting too deep into it. When Adam sinned in the garden, he forfeited his authority of the earth to Satan. Jesus, the Bible tells us in Genesis that God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the whole world. But when they listened to the voice of Satan rather than the voice of God... They surrendered their dominion to Satan, and Satan became the God of this world. Jesus said, you will serve whoever you obey. You will, you will worship whoever you listen to. If you're listening to the voice of Satan and this world, that is who you will serve. You cannot serve two masters. But if you will obey God and listen to his word, that's why it's important. When you have doubts, bring them to the word of God. Because if you obey the word of God and you follow the word of God, then God is your God and Satan has no authority over your life. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says that Jesus has spoiled principalities and powers. That speaks of Satan's kingdom. And made a show of them openly triumphing over them. I want you to understand this. When Jesus was on the cross, he was stripped naked. He was bruised. He was beaten. He was crucified in an open shame on the cross. But when he rose from the dead, the Bible says he spoiled the principalities. That word spoiled means stripped. He stripped Satan of all of his armor. He stripped Satan of all of his weapons. He stripped Satan of everything that he was covered with and made a show of him openly. Jesus turned the tables. Jesus was the one who was beaten and afflicted, but when he rose from the dead, there was a massive switcheroo that didn't that wasn't perceived by Satan. Satan didn't foresee that coming. The Bible says that if Satan would have known that Jesus was going to rise from the dead, he would have never laid a hand on him. He would have never crucified the Lord of glory. But because Jesus did this, he stripped Satan of all of his power. I have the image of a general being disgraced. If you've ever seen it in the movies where a general does something and he's being demoted, there's a ceremony where they walk up to them and they take the badges on their shoulder and they rip them off their shoulder. Very dramatic. They take all of their war medals and they rip them off the shirt, leaving it exposed and, and the threads hanging and they're disgraced and shamed. This is what I envision Jesus doing, going up to Satan and just ripping off his authority, ripping off his power, ripping out 
out of his hands the weapons that he held on to. That's why the Bible says, uh, don't rejoice against me, O mine enemies, for when I fall, I shall arise, and no weapon formed against me shall prosper. God has the power to reverse the effects of Satan now because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. So now begins the great spiritual battle. The great spiritual battle for the souls of men and women. And Jesus does not hold on to that authority. Jesus tells his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, verse 19, for the reason I have authority on heaven and earth, I'm commissioning you to go into all the earth and all the nations And to every creature, if you look at the various records of the Great Commission, there's these three words used. Go into all the world. Go into every nation and preach the gospel to every creature. That literally means that there's not a corner of the world that Jesus does not want his message to spread to. Uh, the world would like you to believe that, that, yeah, that Christians can stay in their lane and Muslims can stay in their lane and the Hindus can stay in their lane and the, the Wiccans can stay in their lane and even the Satanists can stay in their lane and we can all just get on the big highway to heaven. But that's not the case. Jesus said, I want it told to every creature. I want it told to every nationality, every culture group. And by the way, the Bible never talks about the races of people. You know this idea that there's racism in the world. Racism is an evolutionary concept. It's not a biblical concept. There's not different races of people in this world. There's one race, the human race. There's different nations. There's different ethnic groups. There's different cultures. But we are one people. We have the same blood. We have a same similar heart rate. We all have similar brainwave patterns because we are one race, the human race, that Jesus has redeemed from sin. And everybody's worthy of hearing the gospel. There's no, there's no people group. There's no culture group. There's no subset of, of, of internal culture within a group that is excluded from hearing the gospel. Everyone is worthy of hearing this gospel. Revelation 5.9. This is a picture of what heaven's going to be like, and they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. I want you to know that there is every nation welcome in this church. Every people group is welcome in this church. Every walk of life is welcome in this church. Every person, regardless of what they're faced with, regardless of how they're dressed, regardless of what their lifestyle is, can come and sit in these pews and feel hopefully loved and welcomed by the people of this church. And if you're not ready to love and welcome any individual that wel- that comes to this tr- through the doors of this church and, and make sure that they feel welcome and safe here, then you need to find a place of prayer until you are ready to do that. Because Jesus said, it's every nation that needs to hear this gospel. It's every ethnic group, every people group, every walk of life that needs to hear the gospel. He said, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Luke 24 verse 47 said that, that, that it should be preached in his name among all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So what is it that Jesus is saying that should be preached Matthew 28, 19, let's go back to what he said. Therefore, for this reason that I have all authority in heaven and earth, I want you to go and make disciples. Go and make 
disciples. Make disciples. This is the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to make disciples. Notice this is not the mission of the pastor. This is not the mission of the elder board of the church. This is not the mission of the Sunday school teachers of the church. This is the mission of the church, to make disciples. The phrase make disciples literally means to teach, to acquire customs, habits, with understanding and comprehension through continual training. It begins at one point. The way the grammar is used, the way the grammar is structured in the Greek and in English, specifically makes the point that a disciple begins at a point. There is a point of becoming a disciple. There is a moment of entry into discipleship. But that is like a highway, right? You know, when you leave the, the, the back cul-de-sacs and crescents and lanes of your neighborhood and you get onto the main street, right? You turn in your, most of you live probably in an area where there's side streets, we call them, right? And then you get on the main street. And there's a point of entry, right? When I, when I leave Barrett Crescent, I turn on to Radford. And Radford's still a side street, right? No more than 40 kilometers an hour. And then I turn again on another street. And I get on to Westney Road. As soon as I hit Westney Road, there's a change in dynamic. There's a change in speed. And there's a change in the amount of cars that are now on that road. I feel pretty safe letting my kids just walk across the street along the look both ways when we're in our, our home. But when we get to Westy Road, it's hold daddy's hand. We're going to wait. And when you cross the street, you, you eyeball the cars that are make sure they see you. If you can't see their eyes, they can't see you, right? Why? Because you're on a different road. There's a dynamic change. So it is when you get on the 401. When you get on the 401, there's an entry ramp. You can't just cross onto the road anywhere you please. You can't just get off anywhere you please. There's entrances and exits to the road. That's what it's like to be a disciple. There is a point of entry to the discipleship process. And guess what? There's lots of exits too. You can get on the road of discipleship, and there is a road on. There is a way to start being a disciple. Jesus was making it clear. And there's a way, discipleship is, is not a one-time thing. It's a continual process. It's like staying on the 401. you got to stay on. And there's all kinds of exits to go off and to go on. But you stay on that road of discipleship and you'll remain a disciple of Jesus. Jesus tells his followers to go and make followers. And he tells them how you can start to make a disciple. How does one start to be a disciple of Jesus? Jesus answers the question without really much fanfare. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. First step, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Disciples are made first through baptism. Baptism is one of the entry points to discipleship. Disciple means one who follows the teachings of Jesus, the lifestyles, the patterns, and the lived-out example of Jesus Christ. The first step to being a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, Jesus says, is baptism. Now, it's very important you look at the whole context of this Great Commission. 
Because if you just read Matthew 28, 19, you might get, a, you might get the wrong impression that, that when someone is baptized, they are baptized in the, in the phrase, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. First, let's deal with the word baptized, because church history has kind of mixed this up as well. The word baptized does not mean to sprinkle or to uh, flick water or to just rub a little bit on the forehead or something. The word baptized in the Greek means to immerse. In fact, it's kind of strange um, when, you, when you study church history and the way the Bible was translated. When translators of the, the Bible in the early uh, 1600s didn't want to give away too much, they would bring the Greek words in and, and tra- they call it transliterating. Instead of translating, so translating is taking the word from one language and applying the word from the, the next language that means the same thing. That's translating. Transliterating is importing the word from the other language into the new language. So when they were translating the Bible from ancient Greek to English, they did a lot of translating. There's a lot of words from Greek to English that were translated. But then they came to the word baptize, and the translators got together, and they realized, hey, this word baptize doesn't mean sprinkle. And the church of that age was sprinkling, and they were doing it with infants. And so the, 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 the ones who were translating the Bible said, well, if we put this word in the English Bible, that's going to that's gonna get us in trouble with all of our parishioners who read the Bible now because they're going to see that church leaders aren't actually following the Bible and that might degrade some of our authority. So we're going to pull the word baptizo from Greek into the English language and we're going to make a new word, baptize. And we're going to define for the people what baptize means. Well, centuries later people started reading and becoming educated in the Greek, and they realized baptizo does not mean sprinkle. The word baptize means to immerse, to dip fully under. In fact, it was the word that was often used in the Greek to talk about dyeing clothes. And if you wanted clothing to go from white to red, you didn't just sprinkle the red on the garment, but you dipped the the white garment into the red dye fully which is so powerful because the garment went in one way and it came out another way. It went in one color and came out another color. It went in in one one aspect and came out completely and totally different. The word is also used in planting. They would baptize a seed in the soil. And you know what happens when you baptize a seed in the soil, you don't just sprinkle it on the top and hope for the best. But you cover that seed fully in the dirt. And what happens? The seed transforms and becomes something that it was designed to be. But it's no longer a seed. Now it's a tree. And so it is with the word baptized. Jesus said, I want you to be baptized. And the original translation says, into the name. Singular. Not names. There's one name. And if you diagram this, I did this to this in studying. I went back to high school English and looked up how to diagram a sentence. And I found that you can diagram and it helps you define and, and put everything in its proper place to get the best sense of the sentence. 
When you diagram this sentence, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, you get the sense from the English grammar as well as the Greek, you're talking about one person. It's one person's name. And this person is a father, and they are a son, and they also are the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, I want you to baptize in that singular name. Now, if you turn over to Luke chapter 24 and to Mark, you'll find that, that Luke 24, 47 says that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. Who is his name? That is the name that was told in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Well, what's the name? What is the name? Peter answers the question on the first day of the church in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. The brethren were gathered together because they had received the Holy Ghost and they heard them speaking in other tongues and they said, Peter, what meaneth this? Peter said, this is not drunken like you suppose, but they are, they are being filled with the Spirit. This is that which is spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And by the way, you have crucified the Lord Jesus, who is now raised and ascended into heaven. And the Bible says that when they heard this, they were pricked to the heart. There was a stab of conviction to their soul. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do about this Jesus whom we have crucified whom we should have followed and Peter said this is what you need to do repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins Jesus Peter revealed the name of the father is Jesus Peter revealed that the name of the son is Jesus and Peter revealed the name of the Holy Spirit is Jesus and Jesus said I want you to baptize in to the name of of Jesus. You might ask, why is it important to baptize in the name? Acts 4.12 says, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Jesus himself said, I am the door of the flock. If you're going to enter into the flock, you've got to come through me. I'm the door. Jesus later said in Matthew 7 verse 13, enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there goeth be which find it. But straight is the gate, and narrow is the way. You can't have multiple names if you're going through a narrow gate. You've got to have one name that represents all of who Jesus is. Later you find Paul. Paul is going to the, 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 the city of Ephesus, and he meets a bunch of guys there who were baptized under John's baptism, Acts chapter 19, verse 1. And Paul says to these men, did you receive the Holy Spirit since you believed? They were believers in Jesus. They were believers in what Jesus had done. And so Paul said to them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said, no, we've never heard that there is such a thing as a Holy Spirit. And then Paul knew immediately there must be something wrong with their baptism. Because if they didn't get baptized in the way that Jesus told them to, they didn't receive the Holy Ghost. So if they didn't receive the Holy Ghost, chances are they don't have the right baptism. So let's talk about their baptism. He says, what baptism did you experience in verse 3? And they replied, the baptism of John. And, and Paul celebrated their original experience. He said, John's baptism called for repentance from sin. That's great. 
Everyone say, that's great. Repentance is great. Baptism for repentance is great. But John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. And as soon as they heard this, notice, as soon as they heard they needed to believe in Jesus, their immediate action was, I need to get baptized into the name of Jesus. Because believing is not something that just happens up here. Believing is something that I take action on. If I believe that vegetables are good for me, I'm going to eat them. If I believe it's good to exercise and, and, and work hard, that is what I'm going to do. My actions define my belief system. So when they believed on Jesus, they were baptized into Jesus. I could go on. Because there's lots of subliminal messages throughout the New Testament that talk about baptism in Jesus' name. When you baptize, you put on Christ. How can you put on Christ if you don't call on his name? There's another phrase, call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We find that in Romans. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. When do you call on the name of the Lord? Well, you call on him in repentance. You call on him in baptism. And you call on him when you receive the Holy Ghost. You're calling on his name. What is his name? Jesus is his name. All throughout the New Testament, every time someone was baptized in the book of Acts, they were either baptized in the name of Jesus or in his name. Whatever the case was, the name of Jesus was always called on because it was Jesus' blood that was shed for my sins. It was Jesus' body that was broken and bruised on the cross. And it was Jesus who rose from the dead. And it's Jesus who is my shepherd, and I am his disciple. So it all makes sense. I've got to call on his name. Hallelujah. This is to say, maybe you've never been baptized in the name of Jesus. Perhaps you were baptized in the titles Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And like Paul, I rejoice and celebrate your baptism of repentance because that's what it was. I know people that went into the waters, and when the preacher put them under the water, he said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. They came out of the waters and received the Holy Ghost. Now, that, that just because they received the Holy Ghost when they were baptized in the titles doesn't validate the way they were baptized. It validates their heart of repentance that they had. Because in Acts 10, if you look at Cornelius, they had a heart of repentance and had not yet been baptized, but they received the Holy Ghost while Peter was preaching unto them. Receiving the Holy Ghost does not validate anything but the fact that you have a repentant heart and you're open to receiving the gift of the Spirit from God. But if you have been baptized in only the titles, I urge you to take the next wonderful step of putting a name to those titles. Can I just say to you, Father is not a name, Son is not a name, and Holy Spirit is not a name. They are titles. You can apply Father to anybody. You can apply Son to anybody. And you can apply Spirit to almost anything. Holy Spirit's a little reserved. But it's still not a name. It is, by definition, a title. Holy is an uh, adjective that modifies the, the noun Spirit. But Spirit is a noun. And anything can be a Spirit. 
So the name of the Father is Jesus. Jesus even said, I come in my Father's name. If you diagram the name Jesus, it's Jehovah, Jehoshua. Jehovah is salvation. And all throughout the Old Testament, God was saying, my name is Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Sitkanu, Jehovah Nitsi, all of these different Jehovahs to define his character. And when you hit the New Testament, it stops with Jehoshua. Jehovah has become salvation, and which we say Jesus. So when you're baptized in the name of Jesus, you are baptized in the name of the Father. When you're baptized in the name of Jesus, you're definitely baptized in the name of the Son. And when you're baptized in the name of Jesus, you're definitely baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit because God is a Holy Spirit. And so when you say Jesus, you're wrapping it all up in one and it's applied to your life. The blood is applied. Your sins are remitted and your life is now beginning as a disciple of Jesus. It's a powerful thing. There is a spiritual dimension to being baptized in Jesus' name. This was a testimony of a pastor's wife in California. They frequented the prisons, and they often went into prisons to do ministry and hold services. In the United States, it's quite easy, relatively easy, for churches to get in and hold services in their prisons. And this particular prison, this was a new pastor and his wife. They were new to the area, and they they began to have a service in a women's prison. And for the first time, the, 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 they went in there and the warden said, you know what, it's, you're not going to have much success here. We've had so many churches try to start services and they just peter out. Something, they just don't click with the women of this prison. So good luck. We hope, wish you all the best. And would you know, people started getting baptized. Would you know, people started getting the Holy Ghost. The ladies of that prison started turning their life around. And in the middle of one of their services, a prisoner walked into the service with anger in her eyes, marched right down the center aisle of that little auditorium, right up to the preacher's wife and said, who are you people? And she just said, well, I'm so-and-so and we're from this church. She said, no, who are you people? I, have, I am a witch, she said, and I have been successful in kicking out every Christian group that has ever tried to start a work here, but I cannot touch you people. Every time I put my incantations on you, I can't get past something that is red. Something that is red covers you, and I can't get through it. Every other Christian group I've been able to break through. Every other Christian group I've been, but there's something about you that's different. Who are you? And that woman was able to preach the gospel to this lady. And she renounced her witchcraft ways, was baptized in Jesus' name, and received the gift of the Holy Ghost. There is a spiritual component to being baptized in the name because when you go into his name, you are covered by Jesus Christ himself. His blood is over you. His covering is upon your life. And you are now a disciple of Jesus. Jesus then told his disciples, he said, it's, it's not just enough to be baptized. Baptism is important. Baptism is good. But in, in Acts, he continues this, this, actually in Mark, he says, these signs shall follow them that believe. There will be signs that follow my disciples. They will cast out devils. And they will speak with new tongues. Jesus said, if you're a believer then this sign will follow you. 
Speaking in tongues is the evidence of receiving the Holy Spirit in your life. And when you speak in tongues for the first time, it is the sign that follows your belief. They shall take up serpents if they drink any deadly thing. They shall not hurt them. Of course, this means by accident. And they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Jesus promised his disciples that it wasn't just in baptism, but it was in the empowering of his spirit. In Acts 1, remember Acts 1 is the dovetail of Luke 24. Jesus tells his disciples before he ascends into heaven, go into Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. And when they went to Jerusalem, they waited there for 10 days. And suddenly, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Jesus told his disciples, this Spirit that you receive, you will be baptized in water, but I'm also going to baptize you with my Spirit. You're going to be covered in my name, but my name? Is, is good and great, but you also need the covering of my spirit. When you are filled with the Holy Ghost, the power of the Most High now overshadows your life, and you have the promise that was given to everybody. The Bible says this promise is unto you and to your children. Children can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, and to all who are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. What is this gift of the Holy Spirit for? It is empowerment so that you can go out and be bold and talk and testify and have authority and, and feel the power of God in your life, not to do great things for yourself, but to spread the gospel of Jesus everywhere. Jesus finalizes his commission to his disciples. Excuse me. All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then Jesus finalizes it by saying, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. I want you to know that being baptized is a wonderful experience and like like. Like uh, the disciple said to the, the, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, here is water, what doth hinder you from being baptized? We have robes and towels. You can be baptized today calling on the name of Jesus. Even if you were baptized another way, that's okay. That doesn't diminish your experience or what you, what you believed at the time. But now that you have this, this understanding of the word, I urge you to take action on it and be baptized in Jesus' name, begin or continue or reemphasize your discipleship with Jesus. But then, it's not enough just to get baptized. It's not enough just to receive the Holy Ghost. But you've got to observe all the things that Jesus taught you. You can get on the 401, and you can get off the 401 almost as quickly as you get on. And there's people who get on their discipleship track with Jesus. They get baptized and filled, and they get on that highway of discipleship. And they get off because they stop observing the teachings of the Word of God. It's a lifelong commitment. You've got to get on and stay on. And if you got off, maybe you've been baptized and filled, but you got off the highway. You got off your discipleship track. Guess what? The Bible says in James, all you have to do is confess that you sinned. And get back on track with Jesus. You don't have to be rebaptized. You can be refilled with the Spirit. The Spirit can reinvigorate your life. 
but you can make your way back to that highway of discipleship with Jesus. I don't know where you're at this morning or what, what part of this road you're on, but I urge you this morning to take, take some kind of action today to follow the teachings of Jesus. These were his last words before he ascended. His last words on the cross were important. His first words to Mary Magdalene were wonderful and important. But I say the first words or the last words he said before he ascended into heaven were probably the greatest. It's our job to go and make disciples. It's our job. Listen, this is, you want to just be, I want to be transparent as a pastor. It's not my vision as a pastor to do all the baptizing in this church. If you go out and teach a Bible study and that person you're teaching a Bible study wants to be baptized, I want you to baptize them. Why? Because Jesus said to all of his disciples, go, make disciples, and baptize them. And if the person you're teaching a Bible study to doesn't want to wait till Sunday, put them in Lake Ontario and put them under in Jesus' name. Find a pool and put them in. Fill a bathtub so they can go all the way. They have to be immersed. Don't let a toe stick out. But you do the discipling. You do the reaching. You make the disciples. Why don't we stand this morning? Thank you, Jesus. I think it would be appropriate for us to find a place of prayer this morning. Either at the front or you can pray in your seat if you want to. If you've never received the gift of the Holy Ghost, it's not hard. You repent of your sins. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you, you acknowledge that Jesus wants to fill you with this Spirit, and He can fill you. You'll start to speak in another tongue as the Spirit gives you the utterance. It's, it's very, very simple. And if you want that experience this morning, you can pray right where you're standing. You can come up to this altar, whatever, whatever is best, but find that, that commitment with the Lord and give him your heart. Give him your soul. Give him your, your whole self. Become a disciple. Become a follower of Jesus. For above.